allegorical life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership, and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan, and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction, for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis, security, and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak, and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, welcome back. It's great to be talking to you again. Now, today we're having a chat about your most recent blog post, uh, which you titled An Ode to My Wife. And you talk about one of the biggest challenges in your life, which was facing a rare kind of cancer. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that and understanding a little bit about the connection between illness and health and love and faith. So tell us where you were in your life and career when you were diagnosed with this uh, rare kind of lymphoma. So I was just just uh, short of 40, Jordan. I was uh, 39 um, uh, at a time in my life when th- things, were, things were really complex with, um, at that time, relationship and stepchildren and children and, and uh, uh, busy career and, um, and lots of politics in that career and lots of big changes coming up and so a lot of stress and pressure. Um, and uh, it's, it's funny, you sort of, I had a, had a knowing about it, so I knew something wasn't right. And I remember I'd, I'd often go to the gym and and because uh, I used to try and stay fit in those days. And um, and I'd hit the wall, you know, and I couldn't work out why. And I thought, something's not right here. And I went to a couple of local doctors and and they said, oh, look, you know, you just, just got a bit of a flu or you've, you know, a bit, you're a bit run down or you're a bit, you're a bit stressed and just take it easy and here's some antibiotics. And and none of that none of that worked. And I remember my brother, my brother saying to me, um, Look, you need to get a proper doctor. You need to get a family doctor and someone, someone who's going to be interested in your health and not sort of make, try to make doctors wrong. But but medical centres are good for that sort of passing cold or flu. Um, but he said, look, at your age, you need to sort of get someone who's going to be interested in your health for the next, you know, 10 to 20 years and uh, really good advice. And uh, so I went to a doctor, a doctor called Chris Lee, who I have extraordinary admiration for, um, and he just pursued it, and he took a series of um, uh, blood tests and found an anomaly. And uh, that, that anomaly was in my immunoglobulin. So your immunoglobulin is what produces your immunity, uh, and, it, and it derives from, from your bone marrow. So, so I had uh, there's an inconsistency in in my bloods, which was intimating that you know something quite serious was going on. And that sort of validated how I was feeling and what I was sensing. So I wasn't sort of necessarily in a panic about it, but I just knew something wasn't right. Uh, anyway, long story short, um, uh, bone marrow biopsies never, never pleasant, of course, because it's, it's a corkscrew into your hip. Uh, take take a sample of bone out and a sample of bone marrow, and and they found the problem. And I remember the the specialist at the time saying, "Look, you know, um, it's it's like having um, uh, you know weeds in the garden. You've got you've got these a B cell." The B cell abnormality in your uh, uh, in your blood, and uh, it turned out to be a condition called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, which is a very very rare disease. Um, so that was a big shock, and uh, and look, it, it it ended a relationship. It um, you know life kind of fell apart, and 
uh, th- th- these are big things in anyone's life and, you know, some people are prepared to travel those roads and some people aren't. And in my circumstance, that you know, that wasn't possible in the relationship I was in and so I ended up um, uh, on my own. Um, so that was quite confronting, I've got to say, but uh, it did teach me, um, you know, over that 18 months when I was dealing with it on my own, um, that I did in fact have the power to choose my path and and I think having to sort of face that that you know that that road alone and I think probably the, the most the difficult part was my kids were quite young then and sort of leaving them without a father was they were about to move into their formative years their teenage years was was incredibly confronting. Mark, how would you describe the experience of having to face your mortality? Yeah, it, look, it, it kind of hit me like a brick, really. I think um, it, it really made me stop and think. I, mean, I, I had lived a good life, but um, but I but I, I think it kind of woke me up. Certainly woke me up to faith. I'm going to say. I think it was, um, you know, I questioned everything. Questioned everything, and I think that's a good thing, actually. I remember, I think Meister Eckhart, who was a who was a Christian mystic in the 1700s, around the the uh, period of. Um, the Reformation said, look, you know, you, you, you've got to give up God to find God. So you've got to give up your version of God or your image of God or your perception of God to find God, whatever God means for you or, you know, wherever you place your faith. And um, so I had to throw a, a lot of stuff out in my mind in order to, to let in what I think was much more useful in terms of perceptions of faith and, and perceptions of reality. So I, did I reorder my life? Yeah, I did over time. I think I certainly reordered priorities. But I, I think profoundly I understood that um, I had I still had this power to choose, um, <clears throat> to choose my life, choose my thoughts, words and actions, choose my responses, choose my path. But there was a, a golden rule that attached to that, and that was that I, I had to be responsible for myself, for everything that I thought, said and did. Uh, that I couldn't put that on anyone else. I, I couldn't put that on any notions of God or Buddha, whatever. Uh, I couldn't put it on my kids, my ex-partner, my job, my boss, it's just not, it's not, it's not reasonable, not, not sensible to do that. So it really taught me to be responsible for myself. And part of that being responsible for myself was the power of choice, but also the fallibility and imperfections of life that, and, and, and of us that, that, you know, my choices were not necessarily always the best ones, but I was still responsible for them. So. It, you know, it taught me how to forgive, you know, myself and, and then others. It taught me to be a much more a much more uh, humble human being. I think death is a great leveller. The first thing it does really, if you look at it, is it kills off your ego. <clears throat> um, and, and that was probably the best thing it did, you know. I'm not saying I haven't got one, but but it really woke me up to aspects of mind which weren't helpful. And and that's really where, where my Buddhist faith took off. So I, I'd read Buddhist thought for many years before that and was really interested in it but not necessarily committed and I think it was at that point of facing mortality that that it, it really stepped stepped to the fore and you know there's a good friend of mine who's a who's a, an army chaplain and says to me he says Mark you know you, you don't find faith it finds you and um and I think that was true for me I think you know uh, Buddhist thought Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist faith found me and uh and that's why you know now you know committed to it. Um, the, the reason I like it so much is it's so open-minded to the possibilities of, of all other faiths and you know and all other all other beliefs. Really, so it's a very tolerant, patient, open, um, and sensible way of living life. So, uh, so 
yeah, it's just pretty much where faith rose up in, in a meaningful way for me. And, and look, honestly, life just got better and better uh, despite physical adversity. And I lost my hemoglobin. I lost a lot of, I lost, uh, uh, when the disease really started to take over, um, I lost all my muscle strength. If you were to shake my hand, you would have crushed it. I had no strength in my arms. Um, I lost all the muscle mass in my legs. I used to be a cyclist. Um, yeah, and I was, I was, you know, rapidly heading towards, uh, you know, sort of the end really. Cause once you lose hemoglobin, once you, uh, lose that capacity for strength and, and the immunity starts to fail, then really your body's starting to shut down. So. Listening to the Allegorical Life Podcast. Mark, in your journey uh, battling lymphoma, uh, things really turned around for you when you met your now wife, Carolyn. Do you think we underestimate the power of love uh, in the healing process? I think we do. I think um, I remember the nurses saying to me, "You know, you, you realise without the interventions, you'd be dead by now." <laughs> only, nurse, only nurses could say that. I said, "Yeah, yeah, I understand that." And um, uh, and and look, the, the science helps. I mean, the you know the, the chemotherapy and the monoclonal antibodies and all those other you know sort of variable treatments helped. There's no doubt about that. I'm not I'm not you know I'm not sitting here as a total miracle. But but um but that none of none of that could guarantee an extra 14 years. And um and I, I really think that you know faith has a lot to do with it. You know your, your, your mental disposition and your capacity to to perceive the problem in a different way and. I remember my professor saying to me that, um, you know, when things weren't looking too good, he said, look, how do you want to deal with this? And I said, well, what would you do? And he said, look, I can give you two letters. He said, I can give you a letter that says, look, you've got a, you know, a very serious disease that, um, you know, could cause you a lot of grief in, in, in the years to come. You're probably better off retiring now, enjoying whatever uh, life you have left um, and go and make the most of it. He said, or I can give you another letter that says, get on with your life go and do the things you want to do, manage it as best as you can and see what happens. And I said, I'll take the second letter. And um, and he said, good. He said, I thought you would. He said, because this is all about attitude. He said, it's much more about attitude than it is about about science. And so part of that attitude was to discover love. And um, and when I met Carolyn, I just I had never met somebody who was so committed to love, so, so committed to, um, to nurturing, to caring, um, to consoling, um, and she just doesn't leave my side. I mean, every time I go for an appointment, uh, when I went through all those treatments and that, they were pretty harrowing and quite intense, she's just there every step of the way. And, and she just, you know, she refused to leave. And I did say to her one day, are you sure you want to do this? And she just wouldn't have a bar of it, you know, of me even contemplating anything other than traveling this road. And, and in those early days, it was difficult for her because, you know, she thought she would lose me and she would, she would often, you know, shed a tear over that. Uh, it was very hard for her, and, and um, what it also taught me was that it's it's see, see I, I perceive some control because I, I've I've got the condition, so so you know I have the power of choice and how I navigate. But it's really interesting when you're the the carer or the supporter, you don't have that control. So so you're having to sort of sit in that space with someone else who's suffering, but you can't necessarily do anything about it and in earlier blogs i've talked about this about you know c compassion is essentially one of three things you know preventing suffering from rising or occurring if you can't do that then uh, you know minimize its uh, impacts or effects and if you can't do that then sit in the presence of it 
uh, with the person who's suffering it, and that's Carolyn. She sits in the presence of it uh, uh, every step of the way, and, and that and that is you know an extraordinarily compassionate thing to do. So, um, so look, without without that, I I would and would would have struggled immensely. I think I, you know would have made adjustments, but 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 you know the, the power of love, the power of relationship, and all that comes with it has just made all the difference. I think so. I'm very happy to attribute. The success of my health, and it is I'm in good health at the moment, and and there's nothing on the radar that suggests that anything otherwise for the time being. I put it down to two things, you know, the intervention of science, um, really that you know that was very beneficial, and the intervention of love and faith. Mark, what do you see is the relationship between those two last things that you've mentioned, love and faith? Um, I think we've uh, and look, Buddhism speaks to this profoundly, but it's it's giving up fixed points of view, and I had to give up. Um, this notion of victimhood, you know, there was certainly a part of my mind that said, how unfair is this? And, um, you know, having navigated through divorce and uh, other things in my 30s and then and then having to do with mortality was just, you know, I kind of had enough really. And and uh, so part of me played the role of victim as though it was someone else's fault, you know, whether that be, you know, God or whatever or, or life or circumstances or uh, it doesn't matter really, but, you know, it, can't, it, it must be someone else's fault but mine. But that's rubbish, <laughs> um, and it really taught me that that you've got you still got choice here, and you have choice right, right up until your dying breath. Uh, a, a really big wake up call. I think um, I'm sure it's part of my karmic path to have had, had that experience. It, it so helps me in when I speak to others going through a similar thing. I had a good colleague of mine only only three weeks ago who's diagnosed. I looked at him and I thought, my God, he's not well. I'd seen him a couple of months before he looked well and he walked into the room and he was um, quite ashen and had lost a lot of weight. <clears throat> and I said to him, you know, you're not well, are you? And he said, no, I'm not. And he told me that he had cancer. And I said, look, um, the thing I said to him, I, I, I say this about, I'll, I'll say, I'll use the name Bill just to give, just to protect his, uh, his identity. I said, look, Bill, two things you should never, no one should ever take away from you is free will and hope. Um, and those two things, are, uh, every human being walking the planet is entitled to those things and nothing, not even cancer, can take them off you. So I said, you continue to do those things you choose to do, whatever it is you want to do, keep doing them to the extent to which you're able uh, and you've got every right to be hopeful. And even if it becomes a fatal diagnosis or a you know, terminal illness, you're still entitled to hope, uh, you know, right up until you die of breath. I don't think life is ever hopeless and... Uh, and I would say about faith that, you know, we, we just move from one realm to another anyway. But um, so I think hope is really important. I think free will is really important. And I remember um, when I was going through chemo, I didn't I didn't lose my hair, fortunately. I'm losing it now because I'm getting old, of course. But um, but I, I would um, – and I was a cyclist then, so I would uh, – the bike was kind of like my church. You know, to get on the bike was a way of processing emotions and, and thoughts. And and in the middle of my chemo, I, you know, I could only ride it about – 12 k's an hour, if that, and I could barely keep the bike up. I could barely stay upright on the bike, but but I was determined each afternoon, at least for half an hour, to ride that bike, and that was part of free will to say, look, you know, despite how hard this is on my body and uh, everything else, I'm not I'm not uh, going to change that because you know the bike was quite a sacred space for me, and at the time I was working in Homebush Bay in Sydney at Olympic Park, and um, I used to go down and ride by the Parramatta River. And um, 
And I can understand why the Indigenous folk, you know, were really connected to that river. There was something about it. And if I went down to that river and rode along, uh, alongside of it, I just felt better. I just, it was just a, a really nice place to be. And so, so when I left Sydney to come to Canberra, of course, I, I went back to the river and just sat there for half an hour and just, you know, said thanks really you just sat there and and just realized that that the connection with that part of the landscape was an important part of navigating through that um that really difficult time and uh and, and those things are very hard to explain but um you know there's a knowing about that i think and i always say to, I always say to people you know where's what's your sacred space look like you know where do you, where do you go to find that quiet moment where you can reflect and, and make a connection with what it is that you draw draw strength from and Mark, how are things for you now? Everything's really good now. So I have to, you know, I have to live with a condition. But look, I'm really ready for the next phase of my life. You know, I feel great. I feel very enthused and enthusiastic. I credit all of that to, you know, obviously good science, but more importantly, faith and love. And, and I, I just, you know, really want to spend this podcast just acknowledging the love of my wife and the commitment that she gives me each and every day. And and just say to people, look, you know, commit to love wherever you find it, it, it whether it's in a formal or informal relationship through your children, your parents, your partner. It doesn't matter, but um, there's an extraordinary amount of power and love. And um, and it's it, my, my disease taught me that, that, you know, I, I thought I understood it uh, before I was diagnosed. I understand it so much better now. And it's worth it's worth the investment. And And if you're not in a space where you can find it, then seek it. You know, seek it and um, and and find find those people, or that person that you know means the world to you, and and uh, participate joyfully in that life if you can. You know, if you're if you're blessed with such an opportunity. Um, so look, the future looks really rosy. I'm very enthusiastic about my health, about the challenges coming up, the opportunities coming up, and you know, and 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 my my greatest wish is I just simply that I die happy, and and whether that's in five years or fifteen years. It doesn't matter really. I mean, you know, we, we, we all have a time limit, but if I can live a, you know, a, a fruitful and fulfilling life and a productive life and a life of meaning and purpose, and if I can find that through faith and love, um, then that's a good life. And, you know, I'll die, I'll die very happy. Thanks very much. And, um, you know, and it's, uh, it'll be, it'll be a good life. So, so that's my message is to say, you know, why do I write about faith? Because I've lived it, I live it, I've lived it, I understand its power um, and it's really kept me alive and it gives me enormous hope for the future and I think that's what faith is all about really and, and how you define it, how you describe it, um, how you identify with it. Um, you know, we're free to choose those things as, as human beings um, and I would say, one, choose them wisely, of course, but choose them nonetheless because uh, I think without faith and without that, uh, that sense of meaning and purpose in life, I think life becomes a real struggle. But, but if we can rise above that and, you know, place it in faith and love and meaning and purpose and, and uh, sense of duty towards others and, 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 you know, to be more compassionate and so on and so forth, I think that just, just really caps off a great life and wherever it goes from there is where it goes. Thanks for joining us today on The Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you, and we hope to have you with us again soon.